Womanjika, Hari Mai, welcome to the Trans-Tasman Regen podcast. My name is Matt and I'm joined here uh, by Claire Wildfellow, partner in this project. Uh, Claire works at Akina in Wellington and uh, I work for Regeneration Projects based here in Melbourne. Today we're testing out a new format, uh, the podcast rather than a round table, uh, but it's all part of this common exploration of the Regen movement in Aotearoa, New Zealand and Australia. First, we'd like to take a moment to acknowledge country, uh, to acknowledge Parvanata or Mother Earth, and in particular, those First Nations connections uh, to the places that um, we live, but also the listeners and the people uh, within the, our uh, Trans-Tasman region community. I guess we also acknowledge that we all come from different paths of learning, different cultures uh, of learning, um, but with the common purpose of working in closer partnership uh, with our earth and in particular this conversation is focused on business so claire i'm going to come to you to you and uh, we're going to go on a bit of an exploration here but it could be quite handy for people to maybe if we just set the scene on our take on regen and how this project came about and how it's evolving yeah sure thing Matt. um firstly as an intro to myself so I, my name is Claire Wild, and I hail from Ototahi, so Christchurch in New Zealand. Um, I think reflecting on Regen also makes me reflect on my background because those two things in, in my journey have been really intertwined. Um, so my family comes from an incredibly colonial background. Um, my ancestors um, on my mother's side which is is the Canterbury uh, Christchurch side in New Zealand um, they came on what was known as the first four ships so they were settlers arriving from the UK to New Zealand back in the 1800s and on my father's side um, who come from Australia um, in Wagga Wagga New South Wales they were a similar story um, colonial settlers in Australia and I think growing up with this very colonial background and sort of learning about the history of my family and then contrasting that against the First Nations cultures from both Australia and New Zealand, realizing there was this huge disconnect between that Western approach to life, um, particularly in terms of the way that we use resources and the way that we relate to our land. And then learning more about, um, you know, both the First Nations Australian approach to, to using resources and, and that really strong connection to land and also um, the Ta'a Māori perspective. So in New Zealand, um, you know, understanding our relationship to whenua or land and the fact that um, we live in a, you know, we are connected to the earth, we are one. Um, we're not humans who have a right to utilise the earth. So for me, understanding that disconnect between the colonial mindset and the First Nations mindset really made me realise the importance of regeneration and bringing that conversation into um, you know the the discourse that happens in our very western centric um, conversations and and the economies that we operate in, in in our western society and the way that our um, you know people relate to one another and the earth and and the way that we use our resources so for me regeneration is really about bridging that gap between colonial and first nations knowledge yeah, brilliant. And, it, and it's been interesting. I mean, we started this conversation, I think it was July, August last year, and then we did a, a pilot event in October last year, which with a small group of, you know, business leaders from within Melbourne. And I guess that was 
focused on how can we position Melbourne in particular as this centre for regenerative business and development. But uh, when you moved back home in the beginning or late last year, beginning of this year, uh, it opened up this other bridging possibility. And so we've been running these meet, these monthly events uh, since that. And it's been quite interesting, I guess, to see how to bring those different voices from each place together, but also for our, our own work to evolve within this time of transition. There's, there's a lot going on. I'm curious to hear, you know, your own reflections on this, this transition over the past six months and maybe some of the things that you've noticed uh, during your time in Melbourne, but also now that you're back in Aotearoa. Yeah, I think Matt, for me, um, what's been really interesting. So I moved to Australia at Melbourne about three years ago. And when I got there, um, you know, I thought that I would sort of find this really strong connection to my, my father, my father's side of the family and our Australian side. And interestingly, when I got to Australia, I felt very much that I was greeted with this um, concept of, you know, New Zealand has it sorted. Um, you know, New Zealand has such strong relations between, um, you know, essentially colonizers and, and Māori. And I was really shocked by that because I thought that that was not the case at all in New Zealand. And, you know, what I'd seen growing up was a lot of disparity and then being in Australia, um, and noticing that something I, you know, I'd, I'd seen things that I thought weren't right in New Zealand and they were very, very strongly not right in Australia and certainly not to compare the two, but um, to understand how complex both of those challenges are and, and also the similarities in how we address those problems, which is really, you know, celebrating, elevating um, First Nations knowledge and, and cultures and bringing that into that, that public conversation. And I think so working in Australia, I was um, working across the social sector there doing strategic planning and supporting organizations to understand how to become more sustainable, um, whether that be financial sustainability, environmental sustainability. Um, and what I saw through that work was again, this constant um, bringing in of this First Nations knowledge and we need to do more of this, we need to do more of this and people not quite knowing how. And then it's been interesting coming back to New Zealand. I feel like that conversation has continued without me. And so I've arrived back to New Zealand and it's been really brilliant to see the progress that's happened, um, particularly in terms of the relationship between, um, you know, sort of the, you could call it the mainstream economy and then the way that it's been functioning in a um, colonized society and how Matauranga Māori or Māori knowledge and Ta'a Māori or the Māori perspective is being more and more embedded into our way of life and our economy and the way we interact with one another and the environment and our economy. Um, so I feel like moving back to New Zealand, it's been an interesting, um, interesting experience to feel like I'm on the back foot again because New Zealand's moved on without me, which I think is really brilliant. Um, but for me, it's definitely a game of catch up and, you know, um, learning the importance of, of knowing what I don't know and realizing that is nebulous as that sounds that's such an important part of regeneration and you know listening to others and understanding how those voices can be brought into powerful discussions that get listened to and, and that you know catalyze change I feel like I went off topic there but there we go um Matt I might throw the question back to you and then hear your reflections on that yeah well uh, yeah I mean I, perhaps as a, a bridge 
for me, when I first was introduced to sustainability uh, at university, a lot of my peers were naturally, you know, gravitating towards Western concepts around sustainability. So this is in the context of a landscape architecture, of course. So you had things like bioremediation and water sensitive urban design and, um, you know, this kind of social centered approach to designing spaces. But we had this, you know, we had this opportunity to choose a sustainable design technology. And I ended up choosing uh, indigenous song lines because I figured, well, if First Nations people have been using uh, these songs lines as ways of passing on knowledge and moving through country for millennia, then there's got to be, you know, some pretty serious wisdom and technology embedded within that. But uh, I guess fast forward that to now, and it feels like there is a growing awareness uh, and almost a point of convergence. This is one of the things that I see with regeneration is that where sustainability was that very kind of Western, maybe even mechanical mind still, regeneration is starting to bridge the First Nations and the Western and other cultural traditions together. And maybe even taking us some, somewhere deeper into that relationship with, you know, with, with ourselves, with the community, but with the earth, you know, that common ground. So yes, you know, in more recent history, we, you know, we, we both come from those colonial backgrounds, but if we go back further, you know, you probably get to the point of pre-Roman Britain when, um, you know, Celtic Britain uh, was uh, invaded by the Romans and you had an upheaval where um, maybe perhaps more pagan cultures were, that were more centred were disrupted. And so almost the First Nations connections bring, out, bring ourselves back to ourselves and our own paths, which is interesting. But uh, perhaps, you know, maybe just as a bit of a, a sweep and linking it to some of the movements and the ways that regeneration is manifesting, because, you know, there's things that are more overt, maybe more obvious, like the donut economy, for instance, is one that's moving around. But there's others that are connected to it, like reconciliation or like, uh, I guess, gender equality and, and that greater balance and equity within our community. So I guess from regeneration projects perspective, there's all kinds of things internationally that we're seeing and are involved with everything from, because the UN SDGs were, it's not, it's not regeneration, but it's still one of those reference points. You've got the global B Corp movement, the wellbeing economy Alliance. Uh, you've got the regenerative tourism narrative and regenerative agriculture. Those are all, very much starting to mainstream. More nationally, you know, in Australia, you've got projects like the Regenerative Song Lines, where First Nations knowledge, it's actually First Nations led. So First Nations knowledge is kind of creating these pathways and projects. And then, yeah, you, you start to come down into the donor economy conversation. So being involved with the Melbourne donor, and then that's starting to spread with conversations in Sydney and Perth and Adelaide and so on, even into regional areas now. Uh, you know, sustainability, Victoria with their uh, uh, circular economy business innovation centre. It's another one of those markers. And then at the business professional level, you know, you've got a great awareness about triple bottom line approach. I still think we've got very much a pretty diverse spectrum. What I see a lot of is entrepreneurs within organisations trying to shift the narrative beyond sustainability, but often still coming to a degree of 
um, challenge or barriers with a, often a leadership or a culture that's grounded in an extractive old school way of thinking. Uh, but there's very much this kind of period and shift. Maybe we can explore that a little bit later in the conversation, but it feels like there's a, a growing movement, maybe led by emerging leaders and a, a disparity with perhaps some more established leaders. And I have a feeling over the next 12 months, we're going to see a power shift start to uh, accelerate more and more. So yeah, there's a bit of a take on, on, on this, the spread of how it's evolving, but Claire, back to you. I'd be curious to hear how you're seeing through some of the work that you're doing now and perhaps other partner organization stakeholders that you're involved with, how is Regen evolving? Maybe, you know, under the banner of Regen or maybe under the banner of a whole range of other things. Mm, well, I think, um, I think the main way that I'm seeing Regen evolving is often when it's not called Regen. So I've talked before about, you know, bringing this to our Māori perspective into you know the the mainstream or more mainstream than it has been and I think that's a massive part of healing in New Zealand as a really simple example I was at a cafe the other day and they said you know order a coffee in Tereo um or the Māori language and you know every 12th coffee is free or something so it's sort of bringing that um that back into the mainstream and that's one example of how doing something that a lot of people in New Zealand or you'd hope a lot of people in New Zealand see as being inherently good has ripple effects in terms of people's connection to their culture, in terms of, you know, well-being of whānau or families and, you know, um, how that grows and flourishes in a way that is regenerative and healing as well. I think that's um, that notion of healing is something that's become really important in New Zealand. So a lot of little things are happening over here that, I would define as regeneration, but might not overtly seem like regeneration. I think another interesting example is when you come to Wellington and um, you look at, so there's a sanctuary called Zealandia, which has a whole bunch of birds in it. And Wellington compared to anywhere I've been in New Zealand um, has so many native birds. And I've spoken to so many people who say, you know, there's a kaka or a native bird, which is, you know, has been quite rare at, like outside my house in suburbia. And you realize it's because because of the sanctuary that we put in called Zealandia and there's all these birds there and they're you know um moving over the boundaries of the sanctuary and um you know there's more native trees around town which means that these birds have a place to live and so doing something that very traditionally would have been seen as sustainability so creating a sanctuary to essentially stop birds going extinct has actually created this regenerative um ecosystem where birds can flourish beyond the sanctuary, which I think is really interesting. Um, those are a couple of examples that spring to mind. And I think another actually at a, at a bigger level is uh, the budget in New Zealand. So that was released um, last week. I know we're recording this um, on the 24th of May. So that came out last Thursday on the 20th. And that was a really interesting one because something that they did in that budget was reverse, um, I'll probably get my facts wrong here. My understanding is that um, I think back in 1991, New Zealand cut benefits in our budget. And what they've done in this budget is reverse that. And so the negative effects of 1991 affected, they think two generations of people because it affected um, you know, people who were adults at that time and also their children who are now adults. 
And what they're doing with this budget is saying, let's reverse those changes. And so hopefully what we see from that is again, regeneration where we're not only, um, not only are we, you know, in a quite belated way, writing some of the wrongs that happened in that budget, but hopefully the ripple effects of that will be positive and regenerative. So I think a lot of what we're seeing in New Zealand is regeneration, irrespective of what we call it, which is really exciting. Yeah, and I, and I think that's really grounding because at the end of the day, you know, the, the words that we use can be can be misleading or, or, or they can be barriers in themselves. And I think when we talk about perhaps challenges and opportunities for the regen movement, if we want to call it that, uh, or this, you know, post-2020 world or, you know, I guess history will rewrite the language in a way that makes sense. But uh, it's about, you know, they're pretty simple principles, uh, the connectedness. But I guess what we're having to do is to design our way out of situations and out of ways of being and doing business in this context that haven't been constructive, you know, haven't been, haven't been beneficial to communities and, and places. And, uh, you know, the, that example that you're providing, like there's the, the generational lag. So the way that we've been living in the impacts on the climate, the impacts on waste, the impacts on energy, all of these types of things, that will have a lag and you know our generation will have to manage some of that but to think that we might be able to shift the balance now and set a, a new chart a new course and that that could have ripple effects further you know generations on is is quite an exciting thing and i think that's probably one of the greatest fears and anxieties perhaps around younger people especially at the moment is that we don't we don't let that opportunity pass uh, so perhaps if we if we start to uh, wrap up and maybe spotlight a couple of you know one opportunity and one challenge that we see for the region movement uh, you know across the next 12 months since we've been in this conversation for not quite 12 months but especially active over the last six months uh, it'd be interesting to see what you think are that you know that key challenge and that key opportunity in this space mm, I think I'll go opportunities first for me, I don't know if this sounds left field, but social procurement, we're seeing some really exciting movement with social procurement in New Zealand. And I know that when I was in Melbourne, that was a really big discussion point as well. And the reason, um, actually, to take a step back to explain social procurement, um, essentially, social procurement means procuring goods and services, whether that be buying light bulbs for a building, whether that be, um, you know, an organization procuring their catering. Um, for a team lunch, whether that be a government department deciding who's going to build a road. Um, social procurement is saying we can choose to buy our stuff from really anyone. How are we going to do that in a way that has positive social outcomes? So often that means things as simple as buying from social enterprises or, you know, in New Zealand, Māori-led businesses, um, in Australia, Aboriginal businesses. Um, and something that's really interesting when organizations take on social procurement is it bridges that divide between the organizations that are big and spend money and sort of have been seen as the bad, you know, bad capitalists. And it bridges the gap between those organizations and what has traditionally been seen as the do good small, um, 
you know, scrappy social enterprises or charities. It actually brings them together and says, as a charity or a social enterprise or an impact enterprise or whatever you want to call yourself, um, if you can be, uh, you know, a supplier to a large organization or another organization that needs to procure services, then all of a sudden the big organization or the buyer has um, improved the social impact of their supply chain. And that small organization has the opportunity to grow and thrive. I know I've talked about big and small organizations. That's often how it is. I know it doesn't always need to be the case in social procurement. Um, but I think in having organizations that haven't traditionally embedded positive outcomes in their business model and you know, in, um, in encouraging them to procure their goods and services from organizations that explicitly create positive change in the world, that's a brilliant way um, of helping regeneration to happen in all sectors of the economy, in organizations of all sizes, um, and, you know, exciting um, ways that that's happening are, for example, the Victorian Government Social Procurement Framework, which is in, um, in Victoria, which encourages government departments to use social procurement when they're buying services. You've got social traders in Australia, which helps that to happen. In New Zealand, you've got the likes of Armatai um, and Ford, um, which is something that Arkina does. Um, and so these are sort of some social procurement marketplaces and things like that, which can really enable that to happen. So I think that's a huge opportunity. Um, and in terms of challenges, I think that's a really interesting one because, um, you know, change is always the biggest challenge. And there's so many barriers to change. Um, I think a massive one that we're seeing in New Zealand at the moment is this intergenerational mismatch between um, you know, people who have benefited from the current system and people who will lose out because of the current system or are, or, or are already losing out. And that's a tough one to fix. Um, I haven't got the answers. I think certainly that example I gave earlier of the budget um, this year being, you know, more focused on, on better um, government support. I think that is one step in the right direction. I think, you know, an action that everybody can take to progress that is listening to young people. I think that's a massive one, um, given that particularly they will be inheriting the decisions that we make today as people in power. So I think for me, those are sort of the big challenges and opportunities laying ahead of us. What about you, Matt? What do you think? Yeah, love, love your perspective on that. I think you, yeah, you point to some really interesting things. I think in terms of challenges, that one that jumps out for me is this language, this language game. Uh, I was in a conversation with, uh, I guess, yeah, some quite in influential regenerative or tourism leaders full stop, but with an interest in regenerative and sustainable uh, tourism from Australia, uh, New Zealand, and, and also, uh, up in, in Europe and uh, like at the end of the conversation we're reflecting on you know what's that one thing that you walk away with uh, out of this discussion and what it was for me was actually creating a list of the dirty words that relate to regen and and the words that maybe are a bit more accessible that communicate similar values but you know don't don't create barriers or, or don't isolate you know people uh, which I think is is key because there's a risk that if it stays, you know, if it, well, if it stays or if it is too intellectual or heady, then, you know, it, we just perhaps we, we miss part of the audience that we're trying to communicate with. 
I think in terms of opportunities, and, and it points to the one that you mentioned at the end, that intergenerational gap. And sometimes creativity is intentions. And so what I see, in it, and it talks to this power shift that I mentioned earlier, but I think there's this whole wave of, there's a lot of knowledge and skill locked up within younger generations that have been educated through sustainability and have this. So it's an, a combination of education, skills, and passion. And that's just bottle up, bottled up. Now that comes out and shows us, you know, when I was at a climate strike last Friday and you see that tension kind of blazing away. But if we can harness that as a creative force, then I think there's actually a lot of creativity, innovation that is possible within organizations, but also in a new wave of entrepreneurship that's much more aligned to these regenerative values. I think that's going to be exciting, especially in millennials uh, that will be leading that. But then Gen Zs, because they've, you know, so equipped with tech and social media, I could see some real disruption coming from their side as well, both in the social and environmental entrepreneurship space. I'm not sure whether we use those phrases anymore. Maybe it all just gets banded into to one now. But the, the other thing I'm just going to maybe throw in at the end there is this question mark about what will be the ripple effects of this regional migration that we've seen a lot of people uh, you know particularly you know I've seen examples here in Australia where people have either moved interstate or they've moved into regional areas because the mobility enabled by technology like this that we're using now so the ripple effects on communities and, and ecosystems and, and economies fingers crossed that we can channel that in all of the right directions but uh, potentially grounding people slowing people down in regional areas could have some interesting impacts in the long run. So, mm. Yeah, and, and Matt, that's really interesting you say that because um, New Zealand's in the midst of a pretty hefty housing crisis and house prices in the big centres, particularly Wellington and Auckland, are through the roof. And so we're seeing a lot of people um, move to the regions at the moment, particularly first home buyers who are saying, it's not feasible for me to buy, you know, in Wellington or Auckland where I've been living, I need to move out. And so I think that will be a really interesting one because as you said, it gives people such a, um, you know, an opportunity to slow down and to reconnect. And I think at the same time, what will be needed for that to happen in New Zealand is a commitment to this remote working because certainly in New Zealand, um, and I noticed the difference between New Zealand and Australia after you know New Zealand having a very short lockdown or a relatively short lockdown and you know Melbourne in particular having a particularly long lockdown how New Zealand um, has made less has become not has, has has sort of taken on remote working to an extent but nowhere near as much as as much as I saw in Melbourne and so I'm very curious to see um whether we can maintain that remote working shift because particularly in New Zealand as a smaller economy, moving to the regions can mean, can cost you a job. And so I think that will be a, a, um, a real barrier for a lot of New Zealanders. And I think on top of that, um, I hate to talk about the pandemic because it gets talked about so much, but we're having a lot of New Zealanders come home from overseas. And a lot of those New Zealanders bring with them experience in roles that haven't existed in New Zealand before so I think that will be very interesting because traditionally you've you know in order to have a big corporate role you've needed to be in one of the main centers so there's a big question mark over how or if and how can we have um, 
New Zealanders living in New Zealand in the regions who think differently, who bring fresh thinking, who can, you know, help us to heal um, the systems that we've been operating in for the past few years and haven't been working. How can we really regenerate those systems, make things better, but do that in a way that enables people to bring their skills irrespective of where they live geographically in the country or even overseas? Yeah, and I think that that image there of the hidden potential that is waiting to be unlocked is a beautiful image perhaps to close with. And, you know, the, the accompanying image that comes into my mind is uh, you know, like a, a forest that's just been affected by a bushfire and you, you have that reset, you have, you know, the loss and you have the, the pain and the trauma, but then, you know, the green shoots start to come and you start to see the different types of shoots and uh, the more established trees start to re-sprout, but often the energy is actually in, in those, uh, those younger plants. And uh, I guess we're going to see you know that unfold more and more the question becomes for those listening is well what is you know your unique role in that process and how do we all work together to support that uplift so uh, i think we're you know we're not out of the woods and there's pain there's still pain in in many parts of the world related to COVID and other you know incredible challenges that we're facing but there's also this growing sense of hope and optimism and i hope that we can lean into more so uh, I guess this is, as we start to wrap up this um, Trans-Tasman Regen podcast, Claire, have you got any final thoughts that you want to add? Not one I can think of. I'm sure something will come to mind after and I'll want to jump back in. Oh, one thing actually, when I was listing off, um, when I was talking about social procurement before, I failed to give Supply Nation a mention who are doing some very cool stuff across the ditch. Uh, excellent. Love your work. Okay, well, there it is, folks. This is our first uh, podcast experience. So we'd love to hear your thoughts if uh, if you enjoyed us. And I guess we'll be unpacking this. The plan is, uh, it's an evolving plan, but the plan is to uh, have some featured leaders from Aotearoa in Australia come on board roughly once a month, but we'll see how it unfolds. But uh, we just feel like this format's maybe a bit more flexible for people rather than committing to more screen time. People can just tune into. Uh, this while they're driving or taking a walk at their leisure. So on that note, uh, look forward to tuning in next time and look after yourselves. All the best. Awesome. Thanks, everyone. Kakite.